0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, October 27, 2017. It is not an expert council show because we did that yesterday to give my voice a little time to recover. I think you can hear it. It's a little bit stronger, doing a little bit better. I got a, a, a new throat spray that... Uh, I'm going to use it through the weekend and see what I think of it, but uh, it may end up being an Amazon item of the day. I'm pretty impressed with it right now, uh, but you know, it's, I've been using it since it got here yesterday afternoon, so I'm, I, I'm not ready to come down on judgment on it yet. But based on the makeup, it should be, uh, it should be really useful, and uh, I might use it as a preventative when I'm doing speaking engagements and stuff because I always seem to come away with those kind of blown out on the cords. Anyway, so what we're going to do is a listener call show today, the, the show we used to do on Friday. So I, I changed that and made the expert counsel show the final show of the week. Uh, but this week I decided to flip-flop it because I don't have to talk as much in that uh, expert counsel show. So what calls do we have for us today? Well, first we have a jack-screwed-up moment. Um, yesterday, during the intro, I mentioned that Dan Oman was going to be on and talk about dealing with law enforcement officers as a, as a designated driver. And uh, I realized after I produced and had already uploaded and published it that I had just inv- inadvertently left off uh, Dan. I think what happened is the, the call before his was Erica's, and it was on making fermented um, uh, fermented green chili salsa. And it got me thinking about food. My question was on food, and I just didn't put Dan in there. And it was kind of too late to go back and fix it. So we're going to bring him on today. It was a great segment And it's too bad that I screwed it up, but it'll be part of today's show. Next, I have a a video that somebody mentioned in a call called Bitcoin Was Useless in a Disaster. And this was about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And my initial response was, so what? I am tired of people beating up on Bitcoin. And it it sounded like clickbait. And there's a piece of the call you'll hear that I can't really understand what the guy says, and it kind of ruins the point Of it, So I looked up the video, and I was like, this is typical shit. And then I went, wait, this is a great video. It actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin in reality. Uh, It has to do with what really happens in a disaster. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but I'm going to play the actual part with an interview of somebody that was there. I'll give you some thoughts on it. I have another 401K question. This is a question I've answered a lot of times, but if it keeps coming... It's something a lot of people deal with, and it is what you do when you leave your job and you got a 401K with some money sitting there in it, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life going forward as far as do you leave it there, do you roll it to your new employer's plan, do you, do you turn it into an IRA, and the answer is you turn it into an IRA, and I'll, I'll explain why when we get there. I have a follow-up on a question from someone who called in before about growing food in a relatively small lot and the best solar aspect is out in the front yard. Somebody has their thoughts on that because they're doing it. Um, I have a question on tax issues when selling cryptocurrency. I have a question on choosing a solar oven. I will give you the oven that I would buy today if I was in the market for one and why. Uh, I have a question on the origin of the name of the 3006. And the 3006, of course... It's probably my favorite all-time cartridge, so I'll not just give you the origin story about the name, but I'll tell you some of the things that went into the development of the 3006, why it was created in the first place, how that's related to the Spanish-American War, Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, all kinds of cool stuff. And I'll tell you all of the things we have to be thankful for because the 3006 came into existence, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that just would not ever have been without the 3006, and we look at its children and its grandchildren. Uh, we have a question on preventing mold on biltong, but not while it's hanging. After it's done hanging and you're storing it. And then we have uh, a caller that calls in with a, a terrible Alex Jones impression. I almost shut it off. It, it's a bit long, so I have shortened the call a little bit. But it, it makes a pretty valid point about all of this crap with people freaking out about November the 4th, and I'll remind you of previous things that people freaked out about that we advised you not to, and maybe, maybe we can stop freaking out about November the 4th because I am way more concerned about making sure that I get enough of the food prep done this weekend for the workshop in or November that where people are coming to, that I get enough stuff cooked and knocked out so that my final weekend next week before we hit that week, I'm going to be done and ready. I'm way more concerned about that than November the 4th. Way more concerned about that. And if you're going, what's November the 4th? Good. Good. You can even skip that segment then if that's the attitude you're going to have. That, that's that's great. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. The TSP Business Directory is the place to find people to do business within the community and the place to be found if you are a business owner in the TSP community. You go to tspbiz.com. You can set up your listing there for as little as five bucks for six months' listing. There's other options where you can be featured more prominently in the directory. And if you're going to be doing anything, you're going to be buying anything, hey, check out tspbiz. Just go to the directory, give it a search, and see if you can kind of keep it in the family. tspbiz.com, the place to find people to do business with in the TSP community and the place to be found. Next up today, harvesteating.com, the illustrious chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk a lot about cooking on the air, and I, I, I'm self-taught in cooking. I've had some good mentors in cooking. Uh, Neil Franklin, my, my prior business partner, taught me a lot of things about cooking. It's kind of one of his big passions, too. But I've also learned a great deal from Chef Keith Snow. Uh, from his interviews here, his expert counsel responses to us, and I, I, I his his podcast, his videos, his recipes he puts out, his blog, it's all great. He's got courses now on cooking that I think are awesome and, you know, you can find out all about it at HarvestEating.com, where you can also get some of his seasoning mixes, which I use Chef Keith's seasonings, you know, one way or another, probably two or three times a week, every week, like clockwork, in, you know, the Spirico household. So check him out today at HarvestEating.com, the amazing Chef Keith Snow. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. And so it begins, as they would say on uh, certain TV shows or what have you, shit is figna get real uh, in Rome. As we've come to the year of 69 A.D., which will be the year of four emperors uh, and the beginning of a complete transformation of what is the Roman Empire, honestly. The year of four emperors contributed by David Verne to the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com. Each year, on January the 1st, the legions across the empire renew their oath of loyalty to the emperor. But this year, not all of them did. The legions guarding the Rhine refused to swear loyalty to Galba and toppled statues of him that had been set up. They decided to name their own emperor and hailed their commander, Villus, as emperor. Galba had commanded these legions several years before, and they remembered how he beat them and treated them like mules. I'm going to pause there and just say, you got to be careful how you treat people. Sometimes you end up in a position where you need their help. Just going to say that, right? Uh Vitalis it was a politician who had no ambition and had never served a military post before, which is why Galba thought that by appointing him commander of the Rhine, it would prevent any uprising in the north. So, Galba knows those guys are pissed. That's what that means, okay? Uh, Vitalis was a competent and honest administrator, but was a lax disciplinarian. He went out of his way to learn his soldiers' names and learn about their lives. The soldiers decided they preferred Vitalis over Galba. And after the commanders of each legion, Cassonia uh, and Valens, pledged their loyalty to him, Vitalis accepted and prepared to invade Italy. The revolt spooked Galba enough that he decided to name an heir to appease the people. He named a nobleman, Piso, as heir, and on January 10th, Galba introduced him to the Praetorian Guard. Choosing an heir at this point was seen as a sign of weakness, and the Praetorians were even more upset that there wasn't the usual bonus paid that accompanied important events like this. So again, Galba's screwing, like he's being cheap. You're being cheap. It's going to hurt you, okay? Otho panicked. Now remember, Otho was the guy that had been like basically bribing Galba and like kissing his ass. We used to call it eating cheese in the military, okay? So Otho panicked. He was deeply in debt from his bribes to the military, and these were lent to him with the understanding that he would pay them back after he became heir. He flew into a murderous rage on January the 15th. He entered the Praetorian camp and gave a rousing speech. The officers couldn't control the men, and soon a group of cavalry was on the way to kill Galba, Piso, and his advisors. After hearing mixed reports, including ones that said Otho was dead, Galba decided to find out for himself what was going on. As he, Piso, and his advisors were riding through the streets, the group of cavalry attacked and killed Galba. He was 70 years old and had ruled for seven months. Piso and his advisors managed to flee, but were later caught and killed. Otho was quite pleased with himself, but after going through Galba's letters, he realized he had a huge crisis on his hands. The governors of Britain and Gaul had sworn allegiance to Vitellius, Even though it was in the middle of winter, they were marching south for Italy. My take by David Verne. Vitalis was almost the complete opposite of Galba. Where Galba was disciplined, Vitalis was laxed. And where Galba was frugal, Vitalis ate four full meals a day and sent men across the empire to bring back delicacies. Anyone, including his soldiers who wanted a good meal, was welcome at his table. This contrast was what caused Vittilus' supporters to grow quickly in numbers. The discipline might have been laxed, but the Rhine legions were veterans and were much stronger than anything Otho could muster. So now he's got an inexperienced um, claimer of the emperorship on the way with, like, badass troops. And you're wanting troops to fight troops as well. We'll see how that works out. But he's got crosshairs on his head. He wanted the emperorship. He kind of sort of has it now, but, you know... This, this littlest guy is not just going to sit back and, and let him have it. So how's this all going to work out? It's going to get really, really interesting. It, you could see why so much of like Shakespeare was based on Roman history, Julius Caesar, etc., because what was going on was so incredible, really. It, it reads like a soap opera, but a soap opera with death and intrigue and all this other stuff. Um, I don't have any big lessons from this one. I think this year itself, as we go through the four emperors, will uh, be an incredible lesson on what happens when you're not prepared. Because, see, that's what this is really all about. Rome wasn't prepared for the last person in the Julio-Claudian line to die. They weren't prepared for it. They had no plan. Even though they knew, they knew Nero was the last one. By the time he was 30, since he didn't name an heir and he didn't have any children, it, it was pretty obvious that they were there at that point. But no one tried to figure out what to do, and everybody just assumed we got to have an emperor. So we'll see how this goes as we move forward. With that, I'm going to ask you, please, to consider, if you're not already a member of the Member Support Brigade, to consider becoming a member of the MSB today. If you do that, you'll get discounts on a lot of great stuff that you're probably buying anyway. You'll get a lot of great content that you can't get anywhere else. You'll support the show that you listen to every day for a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. When you get done with an episode, if you think that was worth 20 cents, consider becoming a member and supporting our show because... That's what you're paying on a value-for-value value exchange because you like the program that you spend your time listening to. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into our first piece, basically like a hybrid thing here with a little bit of expert counsel. I have a question for Dan Omen, that, again, was supposed to be on the air yesterday on acting as the designated driver when you're driving around with, well, a bunch of people that really need a designated driver. Dan, take it away.
1: Hello, TSP listeners. This is Dan Omen answering your questions on law enforcement and criminal justice matters. Today, I have a question from Brandon in eastern Oklahoma regarding interacting with police as a designated driver during a traffic stop. Brandon asks, can you give some advice for interacting with law enforcement during a traffic stop for someone acting in the capacity of a designated driver? The details. A few years ago, Brandon was stopped while operating a vehicle as a designated driver and he had drunk passengers. The officer who affected the traffic stop requests the passengers to exit the vehicle after noticing that they were quite inebriated. Brandon told the officer he'd be happy to give the officer the IDs of his passengers to verify that they were of legal age to consume alcohol, but he declined to have them exit the vehicle for fear of basically a public intoxication violation. The officer grumbled and was kind of suspicious of Brandon and his occupants for not getting out of the vehicle, but eventually he released them without any incident. Brandon specifically asks, can you give a better description of private property versus public intoxication and how to stay within our rights? First, there is something to mention here that goes a little bit beyond the scope of Brandon's question, but I'd be remiss in not discussing. And that is being a designated driver is a really big responsibility. If you're going to be a designated driver, that means you should not have any alcohol at all. Well, I can have a beer or two is not going to cut it. The reason is, if you are driving a group of drunks, you are at a higher risk of getting pulled over because of the potential your passengers have for doing something they wouldn't normally do. And here's an example of that a friend of mine a long time ago was a designated driver and he was Driving some pretty rowdy drunks in the car and they were heading down the interstate in Atlanta and one of his passengers thought it would be a really funny, cool idea to pull the emergency brake lever. After the emergency brake lever was pulled, of course the vehicle spun out of control which gained the attention of law enforcement onto that vehicle. My friend got pulled over and because the car is full of drunks it smelled like Alcohol smelled, obviously, like there had been some drinking going on. My friend had to perform field sobriety testing and blow in the alcohol sensor, etc., to show that he had not had anything to drink. Had he had something to drink, he would have been in big trouble here. When you get pulled over and the officer smells, quote, a strong odor of alcoholic beverage about the vehicle, which is the exact wording that you will see in the police report, we have the manifestations of impairment. The manifestations of impairment here are the hypothetical traffic violation, in this example, is the car spinning out of control because the drunk pulled the emergency brake lever, and that being coupled with the smell of alcohol, even if you, the driver, are not legally intoxicated, which is a 0.08 blood alcohol content or higher, let's say you're at a 0.04, you can still be charged with what's called DUI less safe. At least that's what it's called in the state of Georgia. I'm sure other states call it something different. But in Georgia, it's called DUI less safe, and it means, quote, a person shall not drive or be in actual physical control of any moving vehicle while under the influence of alcohol to the extent that it is less safe for the person to drive. So here, there's no provision in here that says you have to be 0.08 or higher to get arrested. It just means you have to not be able to drive your vehicle as well as you normally would be able to. That's not going to be a very strong burden for the state to prove. If you have drunks in your car acting a fool and causing you some significant distractions while driving. Okay, now to actually answer Brandon's question in regards to private property versus public intoxication. There was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling back in the 70s that stated police have the authority to order a driver or any of the passengers out of the vehicle on a traffic stop. Whether it is actually constitutional or not, you must comply with law enforcement when ordered to exit the vehicle. So technically here, Brandon and his passengers could have been charged with obstruction for not exiting the vehicle upon the request of the officer. And as for a public intoxication charge for exiting the vehicle, this is not going to happen unless you have some unruly passengers that we kind of talked about earlier. A public drunk charge really requires a particular behavior to go along with the intoxication in order for there to be a violation. The drunk person has to be loud, Boisterous and basically making a scene in order to get charged with public drunk. It's kind of like the cell phone laws. If you're just on your cell phone and driving, you're not necessarily in violation. However, if you commit another traffic offense while being on your cell phone, you get an extra charge for being distracted by your cell phone. It's kind of like that here with public drunk. You have to be acting a fool while drunk in order to get the charge. If you're just drunk, um, standing on the side of the road, not causing a scene, you would not be in violation of public intoxication My advice here is do not drink at all if you're going to be a designated driver and know the behavior of your future drunk passengers before agreeing to be their driver. If they are belligerent and obnoxious drunks, you might want to make other plans. And if you get stopped by law enforcement, comply with their requests, produce the appropriate documents, and exit the vehicle when ordered to do so. You are really much more likely to get removed from the vehicle by force and arrested for obstruction than having a passenger get arrested for public drunk after complying with the officer's order to exit the vehicle. I really hope this has been helpful to you guys. As Brandon pointed out in his notes that... The holiday season is coming up quickly, and there's going to be more holiday parties and thus more opportunities to be a designated driver. So please think carefully before taking on this responsibility.
0: All right, great stuff from Dan. I wanted to make sure I got that out to you guys. Because I think it's just outstanding advice. Next up, I have a uh, a call, really. It's less of a question, more of a call about a video being released that I was able to go out and find. And I'll let the caller talk. I'll come back with a brief concept of what this is about and then I'm going to play a piece of that uh, interview for you and then come back with my thoughts
2: Hey Jack, just wanted to talk about uh, Puerto Rico and uh, after action study Um, Mike Maloney just released a video uh, called Bitcoin was useless in this disaster scenario, cash and gold king in Hurricane Maria and it uh, was an interview with a man that was there on the ground and the um description of you know what we talk about in quote unquote end of the world scenarios. So um a lot of stuff that we talk about, you know, it's not always beans, bullets, and band-aids. You know, it's not always, you know, we'll have plenty of ammunition to barter, plenty of gold and silver to barter. That really is not the case in Puerto Rico. And this interviewer really laid it out in the line and it uh has me reversing on a lot of preps and maybe doubling up on some other stuff that tend to go overlooked. So have a great day, man. Take care, brother.
0: Bye. All right, so you you heard a a part of that call where it was like faded out. Actually, just for your sanity, I reduced that by about half. I left a little bit of it there so that you could understand what I'm talking about, that there's part of the call missing, I feel like there were some actual important bridging words in there that, that lost continuity of the beginning of the call and the end of the call. Because by the end of this one, I'm like, I really can't tell what your point is. But I didn't blame the caller for it because how do you know that that happened? But I did think like this video is probably crap. Because of course Bitcoin was useless in you know San Juan where the, all the power was out. I don't think anybody that holds Bitcoin or Dash or any cryptocurrency is expecting it will be the perfect barter currency during a hurricane. Um, I highly doubt that anybody was running around Puerto Rico trying to figure out how to spend their Bitcoin or, or their Ethereum or whatever, that that was even an issue. So I, I felt the title was clickbait. I'll give you more on that when I come back on the other side of this because I'm not above clickbaiting myself, but I feel like the video really had nothing to do with Bitcoin at all. Like zero, but but when I listen to it, I realize the guy behind it is not a hater of cryptocurrency. He's not trying to slaughter cryptocurrency for the purpose of selling gold. Though he is trying to be a little bit damaging because he is in the gold business. Okay, so that's not that ha- ominous or anything. That's just the truth. Um, but it's it's overall it's a great interview. So what I've done is I've cut off. His intro segment, not going to say anything wrong with it, just for the the benefit of time. And I'm going to play for you just the interview that he had with someone living through what was going on with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Then I'll come back with my thoughts, and I'll expand on clickbait. Anyway, here we go.
3: In a section of the island, now uh, her, the hurricane came shore on the uh, southeast end of the island and ripped across it diagonally and left on the northwest of the island, Right where Eddie lives. So here's Eddie.
4: When there's no money and there's nothing, the hot ticket items were gas containers, uh, generators, machetes, chainsaws, uh, candles, and battery banks. But also analog phones were one of the hottest ticket items because you don't. Really? Yes, you can just plug it in. The old school grandma phones. That really? those were really sought after
3: except the banks weren't open and uh uh, because they have to have internet to for even the atms to work you have to have the internet working uh and you can't use credit cards when the internet doesn't work so it's really just cash right
4: yeah and only fifty dollars per person in rincon and maybe a hundred dollars per person in bigger cities
3: how long did it take for the ATMs to start working and giving you fifty dollars per person per day?
4: They they did that on the third or fourth day, and oh. then the bank shut down for like three days straight, and it hasn't opened. It it opened half a day, and then it hasn't opened since. Wow, it's still closed. It's still closed in Rincon.
3: Okay, um, you were talking about uh, gas and water, uh, you know, becoming. Uh, what, what happened after the cash ran out is all of the commodities became the, uh, the medium of exchange. The way that you survived was to trade things, right?
4: Yes. I, I was always a doomsday prepper, and I knew the neighbors that had the wells, the springs, and the, I knew who made good beer and good moonshine, so I knew who had the purest waters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so
3: water actually became like cash, right?
4: Yes, I was telling you, you could get 30 avocados for one gallon of water. Wow.
3: And uh, So you'd go to a spring and fill up gallon bottles and then haul them somewhere to trade?
4: Some people have a pump, so if you turn on the generator, the electric uh, pump would pull it out of the ground like 800 feet from an underground river. I don't think these were legal. Uh, I think these people had illegal wells, but... It's the way it goes. Um, the FEMA, when they showed up, the first thing they did was sh- find out who these people were and start finding out who the naughty ones were. Instead of really helping, they were finding out who had access to clean water and why.
3: And then shut them down, right?
4: Yeah. Or in, th- <laughs> in the future, they're definitely going to get some sort of a ticket. Yeah.
3: Wow. Okay. Um, you also mentioned cigarettes were like gold.
4: Yeah. Two packets of cigarettes would get a man to do almost anything for you. Yeah. Wow. Um, they would. I paid somebody two packets of cigarettes to take me halfway through San Juan because I went hitchhiking. So if people say no, you would just say, well, look, I have a backup Jenny. I can give you the small generator. I can give you some candles, some canned food. But really to sweeten the deal, you throw some cigarettes on there and then it was, it was kind of better to grease up hands. Wow.
3: Um, <clears throat> you mentioned something about... Uh, the places that buy and sell gold were one of the first places to open, along with the gas stations.
4: Yes, and they were open on the second day.
3: So, if you had gold and silver, you could get cash.
4: Yes, but they were buying it for not the right trade. Right. They were they were taking advantage of the people.
3: Yeah. Um. So, but everything really broke down to cash, and then trade of, uh, you know, barter basically. Barter merchandise. I,
4: it it was really really difficult because. Some people are so desperate, they will sell their wedding rings. I, I gave away my surfboards almost for free, and I, I had a $1,000 surfboard. So,
3: yeah. And you said you sold everything to get off of the island,
4: right? Everything except what I wore and, and a few items like my laptop and some clothing and a jacket. Yeah, I, wow. I sold everything. Wow.
3: Okay. Is there anything else you want to add to the uh, the story here? Of-
4: I wanna say that um, that there's more people dying after the hurricane in the hospitals. And there's no liquid oxygen, there's no cold insulin, there's people that have dialysis and people that are getting injured, they're really in danger because not just malpractice and malcare, it's just there's no facilities. So you gotta be really careful not to get injured while you're using chainsaws and machetes to free other people.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, when you were uh, buying gasoline, you were buying gasoline from a private party instead of at the uh, uh, gas station. The gas station had really long lines and violence happening, right?
4: And, and I found out somebody in the deep, deep woods, they had somehow bought a whole lot of gasoline before this. And gasoline was $0.72 cents a liter, and he was selling it at $1.12 a liter, and he was selling it no problem.
3: And when you showed up to buy it, they, they were protecting it with guns?
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had a little army there.
3: Wow. Okay. Um,
4: everybody has to chain the generators, and child care centers and old people were the first targets of the looting.
3: Yeah, I heard that uh, generator theft was one of the... That was some of the biggest theft, was people stealing mm-hmm. other people's generators. hmm Wow.
4: hmm
3: Okay. Well, you know, I'm supposed to go back there sometime or another, but I keep on postponing my return flight.
4: I don't blame you. Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah. I want to wait until it's a little less uh, uh, dicey as far as uh, safety goes. So, okay, thanks very much, uh, and I'll talk with you next time.
4: No worries, Mike. It's a pleasure.
3: Okay, thanks.
0: Bye. So anyway, I I hope you can see what I'm saying. I I I think this has nothing... To do with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or whether you should be holding some or what your position in it should be because we've been teaching before cryptocurrency existed that you need to have cash in reserves that you can get your hands on that's not in the bank like that that's totally irrelevant to crypto because that's well I can go to the ATM well no you can't or you can only get fifty bucks at a time or the ATM doesn't work or what have you so that's just a a fundamental of basic preparedness and all the other great stuff there. One of the things that makes me realize though like one of the things that you get I get out of this is that if you were making an investment in in the ability to have power it makes sense as we were talking earlier this week about on Tuesday with solar as the price comes down to solar with storage being a really great idea because someone's probably not going to climb on your roof, unbolt your solar panels, get into your house to steal your battery bank that that your solar panels go to. Now, the thing is, you know, I can get a generator. Here's what I could do. If I want to do a financial analysis of this, you can get a damn solid like 6,500, 7,500 watt like Troy built generator for about 600 bucks at Home Depot. That will do so much more than a solar array would. For let's say twelve hundred dollars, you could literally buy two of them. Two is one, one is none. And if one gets stolen, you still have one left, and you could up your security protocol. Not that you should let it get stolen, but you got to say like it's hard to make the financial case for that. But from a security standpoint, off-grid solar is a lot more secure to me because it also doesn't make noise. I mean that's the thing about your generators. So I think one of the things with generators is if you're going to run generators in a disaster, if looting and stuff's going on. And it usually ends up happening sooner later. You gotta run it during the day. You gotta have storage for your power at night, low, you know, run 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 silent and deep, like Stephen Harris says, at night, without that generator out there humming all night advertising, here I am, here I am, here I am. Bring it in, lock it up, chain it down, whatever you gotta do. So that's that's that there. But here's what I mean by saying it's clickbait, but I'm not above clickbait myself. I have an article that I want to write, and it's just a matter of when I get time to write it called, If You Make Minimum Wage, You Suck. Now, it's complete clickbait when I put this out. And some of you right now, just because like, you're making minimum wage and your ears perked up and you're pissed, don't be. If you make minimum wage, there is a 50% chance you suck because you just suck. And there's a 50% chance you you suck for the real point of this article. And you don't suck as a person. You suck as far as your employer is concerned. And it's a teaser for my clickbait article that will probably come out, you know, probably after the workshop. So you can think about it. But I want you to think about it from the standpoint of an employer. Why would it? Why, why would you say that every single minimum wage employee you have, with very few exceptions, sucks? And so I'm going to use clickbait because I, I know that gets eyeballs when it gets circulated on, 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 you know, Facebook and whatever. But that's what I see going on here. Um, I'm hoping that when I do it, it comes off better, though because like, it actually is about minimum wage, where this just isn't about Bitcoin. This is about what really happens in a disaster. They thought it was fantastic feedback. And one of the interesting things I took from it is that nobody direct bartered silver or gold. They went to a pawn shop, got paid undervalued for their silver or gold. And what that says to me is what I've always said is true. Cash is what's king, not silver and gold. The place for silver and gold in a disaster is when there's not a reasonable belief that order is going to be returned anytime soon, and then the cash actually has less value because you don't really know. You don't really know. Will this cash even be worth more? If you have some kind of major breakdown of the United States or something like that, will there be a new government, and a new currency, that type of thing? or hyperinflation, or what have you. Then you have direct barter of silver and gold. Nobody would be going to, you know, Joe Blow's coin shop and getting 80% of the real value, even on the buying end, of their silver or gold for cash to go out and try to buy whatever limited commodities are available. It also makes you wonder, like, should you get, like, five or six cartons of cigarettes and throw them in the deep freezer? I, I don't know enough to know about cigarettes, if they store well long-term that way, but... uh I know that friends that I had that used to smoke, they would do that. They would go like out of state and buy cheaper cigarettes and buy a couple cartons at a time and keep them in the freezer. So I don't know. I won't be doing it. But it, it does seem like, you know, there's a reason you got the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. When you want to come down to real barter beyond cash, guns, <laughs> tobacco, and alcohol uh, seem to make the most sense for that. Anyway... Uh with that let's go ahead and uh, take another one. This one is a question on four oh one Ks. Hey
2: Jack, I got a four oh one K question.
5: Uh I need my wife is changing jobs and she doesn't have a whole lot of money in a four hundred one K where she's at, but I just we're not sure exactly what to do with it. Apparently we can either leave it where it's at, uh she can transfer it over to her new company. Or we can, you know, move it into, uh, I guess, like an IRA or something. I'm just not sure what the advantages and disadvantages of those are. And if there's even, I don't know if there's even a fourth option. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for investment
0: advice, just kind of what the advantages and disadvantages are of each one. Thanks, sir. Have a great day. This is actually really simple. You want to set up an individual IRA and roll the money into it. And there is no other right answer to this, okay, because the the reality is 401Ks suck in the first place. The reason 401Ks suck is because you're so limited into what you can and can't do with your money. They generally don't have a solid cash option, as we've talked about before. So if you want to go to a cash position during uh, an expected downturn, you really don't have a lot of great options in them anymore. They suck because it's highly controlled as to when you can get your money out, even if you're willing to pay penalties uh, or what have you. So an IRA, if you want to take your money out, you can just take it out. You're going to pay taxes and penalties, but you're not going to be told you can't do it. With some employer 401ks, you can be told you're not allowed to, you can only borrow money out of it, which is really not a good option in my opinion unless you know why you're doing it, like you know you have a cash flow uh, that's coming in to, to bridge the other side of it. Otherwise, I think it's a it's a fool's errand, because usually when you're doing that, um, you're in a position where you need money, so you're probably not going to have the money to pay it back. So with, with some exceptions, borrowing against your 401k is not a good thing. Some are very limited to how often you can change your allocations. Some you can do it anytime you want. Some are very limited about that. So the point is you don't have a lot of choice with your money. And the reason a lot of people just leave it or roll it into their new employer 401s is because they don't know what they're going to do with it anyway right now. Okay, but now's an opportunity. Whenever you leave a job or you have a 401, it's an opportunity to convert it to an IRA. So even if you have no idea what would be a better investment than the, than the funds they have available in there, write them all down, open your IRA. It'll be open with a place like a money market fund, and you'll have... Basically, you could sell the funds and bring them over as cash, or what you can do is you bring them over as the funds they are. Then you can sell them and take the money into your your money market and reallocate that for something else, to buy something else. And if you just don't know, and you're kind of happy with what you have, well, anything you have in a 401k as far as like, you know, a Vanguard fund or a Fidelity fund or whatever, you can just hold that fund in your IRA until you figure out what you want to do differently. The key is when you figure out you want to do something different, you can. There is no reason to leave your money in an existing 401k, and there's absolutely no reason to prop up somebody else's new pension fund with your legacy investment when you move to a new job, by rolling it into your new employers. Unless they have some kind of program where they match it or something or give you 50 50 cents on the dollar, and I've never heard of that. They do that with contributions usually, but not rolling from from a past job. So get it into a, a conventional IRA. If it's a Roth 401k, then, of course, it goes into a Roth IRA, which is a much better position to be in. And when your wife goes to her new employer, a lot of times they don't do a good job of explaining the options. Make sure she asks them with their new 401k, does she have the option to do a Roth 401k? If she does, do the Roth. I'm not going to go into it right now, but the Roth always wins in the long term. Unless you're going to be retiring in the next four years, don't even think about anything but a Roth. And if it is a Roth, the existing one was a Roth 401k. Get in touch with me, because if you don't want that money put away for retirement a significant amount of it can be withdrawn without penalties. And I'll tell you how if that's the case. I'm not going to go into it because I don't know it probably is conventional. Most employers are lazy and do not provide a Roth option. Uh, Because financial liars prefer the conventional one, uh, it makes them more money, and especially on a group-type thing like that. So they prefer that, and they tend to talk all about the tax advantages of a conventional, which is pre-tax with Roth. When that money goes in there, I'm telling you, when it comes out the other side, there's no taxes on it. And it preserves a significant amount of that money that can be accessed with no penalty because it was put in post-tax. So always Roth. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one is going to be on um, front yard gardens or front yard permaculture or front yard food production, however you want to put it.
5: Hi, Jax. This is uh, Ray in North Carolina. I was calling in regards to a guy. I think his name was Charles. Uh, he has a one-acre uh, property. He called or left you a message on the feedback show last week or the week before. Uh, I have a very similar property and situation that that he's in. I don't have an HOA, and it's about one acre. Um, and my backyard is also mostly shaded, which I don't really have much of a backyard. It's a, it's on a I'm on the crest of a hill, and it kind of drops off behind my house after about 10 yards past the back of the house. So uh, I would just tell Charles, don't be afraid to uh, take the plunge and, and put most of your stuff in your front yard. If that's where your your good sun exposure is. That's where mine is. You know, we do live in a, a decent neighborhood, and the other side of the road, it's funny how it works. They have an HOA, and, and my side of the road does not and i'm sure some people don't really love the way my front yard looks it's not very conventional looking but uh we we've pretty much planted about 40 uh some odd fruit bearing perennials out there and, and you know i keep it weed even and mowed and trimmed and we've got a border around the bed and all that but you know it's definitely not conventional looking and i would tell journals don't be afraid to you know take the plunge and uh you know, go non-conventional. Don't worry about what other people think if, if you really want to get into homesteading. It was hard for me because, you know, I, everybody around me has nice grass and all that, but, you know, you just gotta do what you wanna do, and that's the reason you didn't want to live in an HOA in the first place. So, uh, you gotta get over that. And one last piece of advice real quick is, uh, heed Jack's advice and start slow. I, uh, I went too far when I started and just got in a little over my head with project size, and it, it's it's coming back around, but I wish I would have Listen to that advice. and Start small and finish what you do first before you go on to the next thing. So good luck to you, Charles, and uh, talk to you later, Jack. Thank you.
0: Good stuff. About the only thing that I would add to it is don't go looking for a fight with this. I have found in most instances that people can, in fact, plant a tremendous amount of edibles in their front yard Without any kind of a problem, especially on a larger property, like a one acre, three quarter acre property, more so than a postage stamp lot. Um, If you, and we've done whole shows on this, but if you make it so the layout is similar to what everybody else is doing that has plantings, right? Because some people have nothing but a big giant lawn, which is just retarded in my view. Um, But, you know, if you're doing trees and bushes and shrubs, the fact that food's on them should not matter. If other people are doing trees and bushes and shrubs, and if you mimic the patterns, that are common in your neighborhood. And so you can plant different stuff, but if the patterns are, you know, there's kind of trees are done this way and there's landscaping around them, and instead of putting in, you know, I don't know, uh, posies and, and whatnot, maybe you're using ornamental chard or something like that that's edible, things like that, sweet potatoes are a great ground cover. I see people using ornamental sweet potato, all over the place in commercial landscaping. You know, why not use Osaka purple sweet potato as a ground cover? And then, you know, in your winter you're gonna go into some kind of a winter crop and you go out and you do the same thing that all the landscapers do, except you get a whole bunch of free sweet potatoes basically doing very little work and it looks very conventional. So I'm not above going unconventional, but it the more you think you're at risk, the more you can blend things a little bit chameleon like, I think is a good add-on piece of advice there next i have a uh, question on taxes on cryptocurrency hi jack this
5: is ben i'm a long-time listener of the show and i'm really ha- happy for all you're doing and uh all the great info you provide for us my question i have is uh i'm, I'm from pennsylvania i just uh invested in ethereum uh, over the past couple of years and i uh, ended up pulling it back out for cash and so i obviously had some gains and i was wondering would you uh what's the process of uh reporting them on taxes i know you can do your capital gains and losses but i was wondering uh just some advice on uh what would you do would you claim it would you not i mean i know you're not a tax uh tax professional quote unquote just seeing what your thoughts were man thanks a lot for all your help and um uh, what you are to this community thank you
0: Okay, I I cannot tell you what you need to do. That's that's just not right, and I'm not going to put myself in a position to do that. What I can tell you is what I think, and I can tell you what most people are doing. Most people right now that are trading cryptocurrencies are not reporting it, and they are not paying taxes on it, the vast majority, because it is so hard for the government to track that down and ever force you to do it or ever prove it, it's it's complicated but it's not impossible and i believe the irs is biding their time with this and they are cuz i'm telling you it it's not just you know not paying your taxes and having to pay the back taxes it's the interest and penalties and all that shit and i think they have targets picked out like oh i don't know coinbase where it's going to be relatively easy to determine that you bought or received x and then you disposed of it at price Y, and there's a differential there, and that's your profit. And I think most of the people out there that are trading Bitcoin and Ethereum primarily are using Coinbase because you can buy it for cash and easily liquidate it for cash. That's one of the great things about it. I consider Coinbase to be retroactively on the radar. What do I mean by that? If you have an E-Trade account, And you buy Fidelity Investment Fund A this year, and it does really well, and it goes up in value by 50%, and you sell it, your you know, Ameritrade, E-Trade, whatever brokerage you're using to buy that stock is going to report that trade to the government, and they're going to send you a form that shows you that you executed those trades. And if you bought it 10 years ago and sold it this year, it's going to be a long-term holding, and it's subject to one type of capital gains tax, and if you bought it and sold it, let's say, in the same year, it's going to be a short-term capital gains tax, and tax a little bit higher. And that is on the radar. What I mean by retroactively on the radar is the IRS has been kicking on the door of Coinbase for a long time. And they've changed what they're asking for, and what they're asking for would not affect most people. But eventually I feel like they're going to get a reporting requirement. If you're touching money and cryptocurrency, you're going to have to behave like a broker with the federal government. Whether or not they will be able to go backwards retroactively with that, I don't know. But I'm assuming that they will be able to. Maybe not to the beginning, but a year, two, three, four, five. I don't know. So if you bought your, crypto, your cryptocurrency, no matter what kind it is, Ethereum in this case, from Coinbase, and you sold it for cash at Coinbase, I would treat it like a stock trade, which is how the IRS says you're supposed to treat it, which means you report a basis, which would be you're going to give them the basis because they don't have access to it. You're going to report the sale price, the duration of the hold, and you're going to pay capital gains on it just like it was a stock, just like it was gold or silver. That's how the IRS has given tax guidance on it, the clearest guidance we can accept, right now that they've been given and i don't like paying them any more than you do but since that transaction exists in a space where they presumably will have visibility into and i can see eventually the irs employing people that go out and ferret out addresses and figure out where things are and where they came from and where they're going especially if any time the 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 the, the currency that you were trading originated in something like a Coinbase with a purchase for U.S. currency with that entity behaving as a money handler, if that makes sense. Because they can justify that then. Now, can they go tell Bittrix to give them all your information? They probably can, and Bittrix can tell them to go pound sand. And Bitrix would probably say, we really can't help you. We, I mean, it's... Cryptocurrency, half of it's encrypted anyway, and, you know, uh, private and anonymous, and, I, you know, we don't have detailed personal information on who these people are. However, if it's anything other than like a Zcash, right, or a mixed Dash transaction, the blockchains are public, the addresses are public, and let's say you had done something like this. You went to Coinbase, you bought $5,000 worth of Bitcoin. You took your $5,000 worth of Bitcoin after Coinbase delivered it to you, and you sent it to an address that was on a wallet over at Bitrix. Once it got over to Bitrix, you bought several different altcoins with it because that's what you really wanted. You just couldn't buy them for cash, so you went into Bitcoin so that you could play in that world. You then, at that point, probably lost some money in transaction fees. You could report it as a capital loss, but you choose not to because you don't ever want to pay tax on it. Over time, let's say altcoin A appreciates in value uh, by double, and you decide you want to liquidate it, but you don't want to go back into cash. So you liquidate it for another altcoin or Bitcoin or Ethereum, which you see as more stable. That has created a taxable event as far as the government's concerned, though I think it's a gray area because you haven't really realized the gain because you've never gone back into a cash position. I think that could be argued both ways, but I think the government right now would say it's a taxable gain. It is reasonable that they could say, well, we can, tra- I don't think they can do it yet, but I think if they wanted to, they could develop the ability to really easily. We know you bought this from Coinbase because now we have, we can see that you bought this. We know that you sent it here and we know that you sold it for another currency here and we can calculate the differential. Now, it's very difficult to do that uh, in reality. But it's not difficult if you bought it at Coinbase, you sold it at Coinbase, or you bought something, you went out and played trader with it for a while, you made some money on it, you put it back into Bitcoin, and since you wanted cash, which is a little bit more difficult to pull off, you sent it back to Coinbase and sold it for cash they would at least be able to have that visibility there and then ask the question, well, where would it come from? What's the basis on it? How much do you owe us? So I'm saying if it ever touched cash, it's prudent to go ahead and pay the taxes on it. If it was mined, if it was acquired some other way, I think it gets into a very gray disappearing world really, really fast. I'm not saying you shouldn't pay taxes on it. I'm saying the odds of being caught for it are much lower than when you're dealing with a money handler situation, which Coinbase is. Personally, the, the currency that I sold for cash in Coinbase this year, I will pay tax on it. I know if I don't pay tax on it that nothing will happen this year, that there is no way for the government to know that. I fear that retroactively they will, and when it happens two years later, the three or $4,000 that I needed to give them this year Will be thirty or forty thousand dollars for interest penalties et cetera, so I, I'm not about harming myself that way or having to live worried that that's going to come down there's other ways if you want to to be smarter about avoiding taxes as a public personality I can't play that game. I have to basically pay every tax because i am li- I am literally on the radar I guarantee you that um, anybody in my business would be. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one is on solar ovens. Hi,
5: Jack. This is Martha from South Carolina. Um, I have a question regarding solar ovens. My husband and I built our own solar oven several years ago, and it's worked fine, but we've decided to upgrade and purchase a solar oven this year. So I'd like to hear your opinions and reviews of which would be the best commercial solar oven for us to
0: purchase. Thank you. I do, in fact, have a recommendation for you. Uh, for about five years, six years, I owned a Global Sun Oven, uh, probably the most popular brand that there is. And they they started at expensive, and they got more so uh, without really getting any better. They started including more crap with it, pots and pans and stuff, and kits to jack the price up. But it it really the the, the base product really didn't change at all, and. It's not a bad product. I personally bartered it out eventually because I didn't actually use it enough to justify keeping it personally. Uh, there's so many different ways that I like to cook and sun ovens really work well for slow cooking and I have plenty of ways to do that. Um, and I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't like it a great deal. I love that you guys built one. Decided that you like it and you want to make it a bigger part of your life. You want to buy something a little more efficient. So when, you, when you're when you going to make that step, there's really two main types of solar ovens. There's some other stuff out there, but in general, in the mass market, you have solar ovens that are like a true oven. They're a box. They're closed in, and they, ref, they have usually reflectors that reflect sunlight into them, and then they build up temperature, and they hold it in by being closed. So light can get in, build up heat. Heat has a lot more problem getting out than light has getting in. Is the the basics of how they work. You're bringing in more than you're letting out, and I think those are the best. The most popular one again, Global Sun Oven, available at sunoven.com, was the one that I owned. Uh, the All American is kind of their base model. It's three hundred and fifty bucks. They have one that comes with some pots and pans and stuff like that, and it's four hundred dollars. When they first came out, they were about $275. I actually had a discount for MSB. As their price continued to climb to the point where I thought they were no longer a good value, I removed them from the MSB, and I stopped recommending them. Not because there was anything wrong with the product, but because I found the price to be uh, just not enough return. Not enough return of value. I mean, you can buy a lot of shit for $350. I can go buy a Weatherby Vanguard rifle for $350 to $400. Um, I just... I just don't see a plastic box uh, with a metal reflector being worth that. There, was, there is something nice about them that the model I recommend now doesn't have. One is that they have like a cantilevered floor, and the reason they have that is they also have a, a little adjuster stick in the back that lets you adjust the angle of the oven a little higher or a little lower, and that does help with getting a little bit higher temperatures which is fine and it, you know it works pretty good. It folds up nice, it transports nice, etc. Um but if you don't have that little adjuster, then your floor is level, you don't need to worry about your little cantilever. So I don't think that it's valuable enough to spend $400 on. So the one I and my other problem with it is is you can only cook one thing at a time with it. It's relatively small. It seems big and bulky, but like two pans, two pots don't fit in there. So uh, a, a few years ago after i bartered mine and i started thinking about needing to have one i could recommend when asked i started doing some research and i've continued to do that research up till you know present time and i've come up with a product that i recommend now from a company called Solavor S O L A V O R E the Solavor sport uh solar oven uh is about as indestructible as it gets it has a great reflector that goes on it to reflect uh, radi- solar radiation into the box uh, it's damn near unbreakable, indestructible. It's not glass. It's a, it's a polycarbonate type, uh, thing with an air pocket in it. it makes it very, very efficient. It stays cool to the touch on the outside. You will not burn yourself on the outside of it at all. It comes with two, uh, enameled pots, which is nice. They're not expensive, so it's not big a big deal, but it does come with them as opposed to the base model of the, the global sun oven the uh, that, that does not come with it. Uh, And this comes with two and a thermometer and all the stuff that you need to start going. And it's $287, and you can cook two pans of stuff at once. And I don't know of another product that's better, or I'd recommend the better product. If you want a commercial sun oven, I have a link in the show notes for this. The Solivore Sport is what I would recommend. Again, it comes with uh, two graniteware pots, an oven thermometer, water pasteurization tool, all the extra stuff that comes with the $400 one, but for 280 bucks, and you get the ability to run two pots at the same time. So we can make stew and bread, right? That's that's why I think makes it, one of the things I think makes it a lot better. The other options are more of your parabolic styles uh, or your reflector styles where you're not really closed in, you're in open air. Those work good. Some of them actually have the ability to generate an incredible amount of focused heat to do things that are more like frying and sautéing and stuff like that. I personally feel that they are a pain in the ass, that we live in America, not in the middle of the desert in in Africa. We have plenty of fuels available, and if you want to do sautéing and stuff like that, you are much better off with a grill, an alcohol burner, a propane burner, a rocket stove. There's so many better options for that type of cooking, and the thing about those parabolic-type designs is they really require optimum conditions to work well, at which point they do outperform the boxes. But you don't always have optimum conditions. Wind can become a problem. And if you're not careful with them, um, you put your hand in the right place so you can get severe burns, which the only way you're going to burn yourself with a box-style cooker is touching the cookware after it's been in there a while without a pot holder. If you do that, you, you, you'll learn from the experience. You won't do it again. Uh, so that's what I recommend is a Soliver Sport, uh, Sun Oven. Again, two pots at once is the big reason why, and a much better price on top of it all. With that, let's take another one. This one is on why we call the 3006 the 3006.
2: Hey, Jack, this is Mike. Uh, my question for you is, uh, what does the 06 stand for in, uh, 30-06? Uh, I enjoyed your Ballistics Rewind show. And I uh, heard just about every other term uh, explained, but I uh, just wasn't sure what, what that, um, those two numbers designate. And there were a couple other uh, weapons you noted that had similar uh, dentures on there. So anyway, thank you.
0: Well, the 3006, uh, like many truly great uh, uh, sporting rounds, began its history as a military round. And what happened was our military in the early 1890s adopted smokeless powder. Up until then, we had people doing things like running around with trapdoor springfields with basically black powder cartridges, lever action uh, rifles, and things like that. But even though they were cartridges, they used black powder within the cartridges. And we realized we were following behind, following behind the rest of the world and in the 1890s, we adopted a cartridge known as the .30-40 Craig, which is a rimmed cartridge. And it used a uh, 30 caliber, 220 grain, round nose bullet. And in that period of time, we entered a little conflict called Spanish-American War, uh, which made Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders famous, of course, uh, even though they were only really a small part of the entire war. Uh, that actually occurred in the year 1898, and as we began to engage Spanish troops specifically in Cuba, the Spaniards had adapted a cart- adopted a cartridge that is still quite in use today. Uh, it's one of another fine sporting cartridge, but also an amazing military cartridge: the seven millimeter Mauser. And uh, they called it the Spanish Hornet that our troops did in, in Cuba because. It was one of the first truly supersonic rounds. And it made a crack overhead when you, you just when it went overhead from the the sonic boom. And while we ended up winning the Spanish American War, if you want to call it that, and did well, we, we took losses and we realized that the thirty forty Craig was not up to the, the challenge. So they began developing a new cartridge uh around nineteen oh one and it was completed in nineteen o three, and that was the thirty thirty oh three it too used a two hundred and twenty grain round nose bullet and while it had higher muzzle velocities than the thirty forty Craig, it was still it was at around you know twenty three hundred feet per second. We looked at what other people were doing and they were using like 150 grain Spitzer style bullets or 140 grain Spitzer bullets or what have you. Um, in any event, they were using uh, Germany was using the eight millimeter, which was a 7.92 millimeter actually by 57 miles at 153 grains, much higher velocities and a pointed bullet travels further. So we kind of shit canned this whole 30. like, this is not what we want. And, It took until 1906 that we came out with the rifle cartridge caliber 30 model of 1906, which was then not ever actually referred to by our military as a 3006, but was quickly adopted by others and the soldiers themselves calling it the 3006. So the short answer there is it was called a 3006 because it was released in 1906, caliber 30 year 1906. That's... That's the whole thing. But I think it's an amazing history and a development path that led us there. And uh, I wanted to kind of point out how many cartridges today we owe it to the 3006 that they're here. Uh, that includes the 2506 Remington, which is one of the best flat shooting cartridges ever. Um, the 6.506 was, was remained a wildcat. The 270 Winchester. Uh, which is a 27 caliber, you know, in the 3006. The 280 Remington, which is basically the 3006 made it to a 7 millimeter. The 3006 itself. The 33806, which is one of the most underrated cartridges of all time. And everybody that ever owns one ends up not wanting to shoot anything else because they're so damn good and so damn deadly. And the 35 Whalen. And, and people think, well, that's kind of the whole story. There was some other stuff made with it in the Wildcat family. But it's not the truth. Because the truth is that as we we transitioned as our, into modern military, and we wanted a a case that was more efficient um, for a thirty caliber military round for our NATO round that we would share with our NATO allies and, and standardize on, we wanted a cartridge that. I mean, you got to think about the military. You're splitting hairs between the 308 and 306 with how much powder it uses, how accurate it is. It's it's they're almost ballistic twins, and the amount of powder differential is almost meaningless to you and me. Or, or how much brass is used is almost meaningless to you and me. But With the military buying, you know, a million, a, you know, 100 million rounds, etc., with contracts at a time, well, that all adds up. When they're shipping it around from place to place, the weight adds up and, and things like that. So when we went to the 308 or the 762 military round, Everybody thinks well that was a new cartridge. All it was is they took the thirty oh six case and shortened it and then necked it to thirty caliber. It's basically a shortened thirty oh six. That's all the three oh eight is or the seven sixty two is. A short shortened thirty oh six. And because of newer powders and because of what happens with spatial restrictions on the powder and pressures, you could get almost the performance out of the thirty or the, the three oh eight as you did out of thirty oh six. And with lighter rounds that the military would use like hundred and fifty grains. In some instances, you actually could exceed the muzzle velocity. The .30-06 shines with the heavier bullet that the military doesn't use, and the .308 shines with the lighter bullet that the military does use. So that gave us the .308, which gave us the .243, the .260 Remington, the 7mm 08, uh, the .338 Federal, and the .358 Winchester. All of those came from that original parent cartridge, caliber 30, model 1906. So it's it's not just you know, a cartridge that we look at as being a thing onto itself. It it literally gave birth to the finest family of sporting cartridges that I believe to this day. You can take your ultra magnums and your super short magnums and your you know, your weather and all of that shit and you can cram it. There is nothing that you can't do in North America with the family of cartridges from the thirty oh six and then the family of cartridges from the 308, which was the child of the 06, and the 308's offspring then being the grandchildren of 3006. So now you know where it came from. you got some history to go with it. Some somber thing that I wanted to point out to you guys, though, because I mentioned Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders. I sanity-checked everything I just told you. It was pretty much I knew all that, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass. So I went back and fact-checked all, everything I just gave you, and it led me to read a little bit up on the Rough Riders, and the Rough Riders actually deployed into combat on May 29, 1898. Keep that in mind. May 29, 1898. They were in three battles. That was the Battle of uh, Los Gusimas, uh, the Battle of San Juan Hill, which of course is the most famous, and the siege of Santiago. They returned home on August 14th. So May 29th to August 14th. That's how long the whole thing lasted. And and as I was researching this, I just wanted to know. You know, what were the casualties? So, here's the losses in service of officers. Two were resigned or discharged. Two were killed in action. One died of disease. Total officers lost out of the Rough Riders was five. Enlisted men, as you might imagine, the number's higher. Discharged for disability, nine. Discharged by order, 31. Exactly what that means. I don't know because discharged by court martial was zero. Okay. Killed in action. 21. Died of wounds that were received in action. 3. Died of disease. 19. Suicide. 14. Deserted. 12. Total losses. 95. 14. Of these men that were only in three battles and were only at war for about four months killed themselves. It's just something to think about when you hear the drum beat for war. And I think part of why these men killed themselves had to do with the superior weaponry the Spanish had. And imagine... Haven't been a farm boy or a ranch so or something, grown up with guns your whole life, but have never heard that supersonic crack of bullets spraying at you. I think it had a psychological impact. And I think it's part of why the 3006 came to be. We knew we needed better. The seven millimeter Mauser uh, in the Spanish American War taught the Americans a hard lesson. With that, let's go ahead. We got a, another question. Uh, this one is on moldy biltong, but not while you're making it, while you're storing it, something I did not heard come up before.
2: Hi, Jack.
6: I have a question about biltong. How do you keep yours from growing mold after it's done drying out? Details are I use your method, and it looks great, it tastes great, I pull it out after I get done making that I stick it in a zip bag, and within, uh, say, a week, there's mold growing all over it. And I'm not sure why if I should be putting it in the freezer or what I should be doing, but any advice would be appreciated. Thanks.
0: So when you, when you finish Biltong, so I, again, I've had all these people, you have to have a Biltong box and a light bulb and a dehydrator. No, no. Dip it in apple cider vinegar. You coat it with salt, black pepper, and coriander and any other seasonings you want. You let it sit in the refrigerator overnight. You hang it up. And you let it cure in an air-conditioned room or a shady area outside during a dry time of the year, and a fan in that room is helpful. And then you have to decide when you want it to be done. Now, I just released my videos on the last batch I made. Had I not left to hunt for two and a half days, I would have probably pulled it off the line at least a day and a half earlier when it was a little bit pink left in the center. I like my built-on a little bit more pinkish. Um... It's fine completely dry, and it stores well completely dry. But if you're pulling it when it's still somewhat moist, which, again, is the best way to do it, and then you're going to put it into something like a Ziploc bag where there's air in there, and some of that moisture will continue to wick out into that air, then you're going to get humidity. And if you get humidity, if there are any mold spores, they're going to start working. Now, overall, we keep the mold down to a large degree because of the salt, but also because of the acidity of the vinegar. So I think that one of the things you might look at is, like, are you using enough apple cider vinegar to keep your mold down? Because that is, like, the first place to check. When you're having mold form while it's hanging, if that ever happens. So I used to just kind of put it in a spray bottle, and I'd mist my meat with vinegar. What I do now, I get a bowl, and vinegar's cheap, man. I dump it in there, and I dredge it in there like I was going to be dredging a Think of it like it's egg yolk and you're, you know, an egg wash and you're dredging a piece of fish that you're going to fry. That's how I dredge it. And then I, you know, I lay it all out on the cutting board and I hit it with the salt, flip it, hit it with the salt, pepper, coriander, black pepper, all that stuff. And uh, let it sit overnight and hang it. And I never have mold issues during or after. However, because I am a biltong fiend, I always vacuum seal my biltong. And then I usually put my vacuum sealed biltong in the deep freezer. I have before like thrown it in Tupperware containers or whatever with like a desiccant in there with it, and and it's never molded, but it doesn't last very long. So I haven't come up with the the vacuum seal method to prevent mold because I've never had a mold problem. I came up with a prevent Jack from eating all the biltong too fast, but it's probably why I've never come up with mold. So I, I just recommend vacuum sealing. You're built on. I think you'll have less likelihood of mold that way, and definitely the freezer or the refrigerator will probably help as well now it's designed to be a long term storable food, but when it was when it was designed to do that, it was allowed to dry fully as as South Africans developed a taste for it, uh, you start, they started realizing, hey, this stuff's pretty good when it 's still a little bit wet, and then that requires a little bit different of storage mentality because if you just leave it out. It will almost completely mummify and totally dry, and it will be more like jerky that way, uh, but it's still its own unique thing. But uh, that that's what I'm going to suggest. Vacuum seal it, or if you're going to use a jar or a Ziploc bag or whatever, get all the air out and use some sort of a desiccant, something to keep it dry. Any of that residual moisture on the outside should keep your mold down. Refrigerator even, probably a, a, a good move. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. And this is the one that starts off with a very bad Alex Jones impression. I almost deleted it, but I think it's actually a pretty sane call overall and a good thing to point out because we do have a lot of scuttlebutt going off about November the 4th. So here we go. Uh, a bad Alex Jones impression followed by some pretty good commentary.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Alex Jones here from InformationWars.com. Antifa's coming. Y'all need to get ready. Antifa's going to the range. They're learning how to try. They say it on their website, refuse fascism that they're coming for us. I have inside sources. They said that they're coming. All you people need to get ready. All right, for you people to actually believe that stuff, it ain't going to happen. All right. So calm down. Take a deep breath. Most likely what November 4th will be is a bunch of Antifa setting up tents and parks and crapping in trash cans. Okay? Just calm down. It ain't going to happen. All right? It's not going to be the end of the world. It's not the start of civil war. Okay? First off, if they did decide to get violent, they have to go through the police. If they make it through the police, they have to go through the National Guard. So all of you oath keepers, militia, three percenters, calm down. All right? I'm seeing this all over message boards. All over YouTube is lighting up. It's civil war. It's going to be the end. It's... This end of the world porn is really getting annoying. You know, when it comes down to if it's walking dead or whatever it is. Listen folks, you aren't Rick Rhymes. Alright? You're, you're, you know, you're not any star from any of the survivors book that we love. Alright? And besides, if you go to these rallies, you try and be a proud boy, you try and stand up to Antifa, guess whose picture is going to be on the cover of the newspaper? It ain't going to be Antifa, so it's going be the horrible right wing. It goes out against Antifa. So that's just my opinion. I haven't heard you talk about this yet, Jack, so let's let's see what, uh, what you have to chime in on it.
0: I haven't said anything because I think it's all a bunch of stupid, overblown stupidity that the usual suspects are blown out of proportion because they have to do something to be sensational yet again. Um, I do think there'll be a lot of Antifa rallies and stuff like that, and I think that the best thing we can do is what you alluded to. Absolutely nothing. Stay away from it. Do not get involved. Don't go stand up to them. Well, you, you stand up to people that actually pose a threat to you. A bunch of people out spouting nonsense and crapping in garbage cans do not pose a threat to you. Well, they might smash a window or something. Let the police handle it. If If there are... A 1,000 Antifa assholes nationwide, or 10,000 Antifa assholes nationwide, burning buildings and throwing rocks and stuff like that, and no one from our side, if you want to call it that, gets involved, Then the, then the media can do two things. They can report on the bullshit that they're doing, or they can ignore it. But if you get involved, they can blame us, and they will. They absolutely will. There was one that happened in in, uh, California, somewhere near Berkeley. The Antifa people were all pissed off because of a free speech rally organized by the right. The right canceled the rally. They didn't show up. They didn't even show up. They canceled it a week in advance. Antifa showed up to protest a rally that wasn't going to happen. They committed acts of civil disobedience. They engaged in, in violence with law enforcement, and they destroyed property. And the media still blame the right because it was a right wing rally that they were protesting. You're in a, you cannot win by playing the game, so don't play the game scenario. But what if they march on us? Then we can worry about it. And then I'm not even that worried. These are a bunch of assholes, and their whole purpose in doing this is to get attention. By creating anger and resistance. And whoever you are, if you resist them, they will say you are Nazis, and the media will back that story. Don't get involved. Leave it alone. But Jack, haven't you studied history? All it takes for you. Shut up! Shut the hell up! This isn't Hitler in his brown shirts. This is a bunch of do-nothing, useless, scabs of humanity, angry at the world, throwing a tantrum. If I think the second coming of Hitler is here, I will lead the resistance myself into certain death to prevent it. I will not get out of my chair for these people. They are not worth my time. You wanted to know what I think, that's what I think, and I'm done because it's about all my voice can handle this week. I'll give you one real-world analogy of this, though, involving animals. So last year, the turkeys that I had were really big, even for the breed I usually raise. And they were a lot more aggressive than the ones I have this year or the ones I had the year before. I don't know. They had more of an asshole streak in them. And a couple of the, there was three big gobblers, and the biggest gobbler I never weighed this bird on the hoof or on the on the foot, I guess you'd say, but he dressed out so the carcass weight was forty two pounds so i 'm putting this bird over sixty pounds live weight with the guts in and the feathers on and all that sixty pound bird that 's a pretty big frickin' bird, and turkeys can be aggressive, and he got aggressive with the dogs, and he he got really aggressive with Lucy, but Charlie even eventually. wouldn't engage with him. He was a a little bit afraid of him. A little bit afraid of him. And when a dog's a little bit afraid of something, whatever it's afraid of gets more aggressive. So the bird got bigger and tougher and puffier and would come at Charlie. So Charlie would back off a little bit more. He's looking at me like, don't tell my story, I feel embarrassed now. Right, so um, that went on. And Lucy was very new to the pack at this point. We just brought her in. And so my buddy David and I are sitting here, and we're watching Charlie kind of back off of the one big, big gobbler. And I start thinking, I wonder how Max would react. You know, Max, the 150-pound German Shepherd, would react to him. So Max loves his ball. So I roll the tennis ball right into the middle of the turkeys. Max doesn't really run much anymore. He kind of saunters out there and picks his ball up. And the, the gobblers are all, but the big gobbler's like, he's got his wings out. He's like, nah. Max laid down in front of that turkey and chewed on that ball like that bird wasn't even there. And what he was saying is, you are so beneath me, I do not even acknowledge your existence. If you want to mess with me, I will end you. But until I think you're an actual threat to me, you don't exist. You are beneath my world. The scum that are Antifa and neo-Nazi scum, I put them in the same bucket, and they go right in there with the extremists in Black Lives Matter. You are scum. But until you actually represent a threat to me, you are so beneath me. You do not even exist. I will not empower you with my intention. That's how I feel about these people. Now, Tell you a little bit more of that story because it has a happy ending from a buddy Charlie. Charlie was always capable of ending one of these birds too, but he also knew, I'm not supposed to. These are part of the the livestock, so maybe this thing can hurt me, and I'm not allowed to kill it. Right now, I'm telling you, if one of them got too aggressive with him and he whacked it, I, he's not going to get in trouble for that. Like you can only expect so much out of a dog. But uh, like I said, we just got Lucy, and Lucy's standing out there. And this gobbler's coming closer and closer and closer to her. And I'm like, I'm going to see where this goes. It's like a day before the, the birds are going to the butcher anyway. So it's coming closer and closer. And Charlie's sitting on the porch, and he's watching. And he's got his head cocked sideways like, what's going on here? Well, this turkey walks over, and finally it gets up the courage, and it pecks Lucy really hard, like right in the side. And they can bite pretty good. She yelped and jumped. Charlie was in the game, man. He ran in there. He didn't bite him, but he bulldog T-boned him and like just roughed and I let him go for a little bit. Let him rough him up. He pulled some feathers out. And I'm like, no more. Stop. And he stopped. And that turkey's like, oh, I guess I guess that 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 little game's over. That's antifa. That's antifa. The people that we are, the people that truly stand for liberty in this country. We'll tolerate their shit and see them as beneath us until they actually operate as a threat. If they ever operate as a threat, they can be crushed like the cockroaches they are in a second. And cockroaches know they're cockroaches. So they behave like cockroaches. They try to create an infestation. But these roaches can only infest us if we allow them to. Don't worry about November the 4th. Worry more about whether or not your pipes will freeze tonight than November the 4th. Of course, remember, remember the 4th of November, which is why they've chosen the date. These people aren't anarchists. They're scumbag statists masquerading as anarchists because one cannot be a communist and an anarchist. The two systems are incompatible with each other. All right. Anyway, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to help support us, one of the ways that you can do that is you can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you just go to tspaz.com anytime you're going to shop online, do your shopping from there over at Amazon. You'll help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. You can also see all of our current item of the day reviews that we've done. And I wanted to point out that like when you're when you're reading um about one of our items of the day, you'll look at the bottom, you'll see a set of tags. And and when you see those tags you'll notice they have an AZ after them for the AZ and T-SPAS. For instance, today's has the following tags, Cooking AZ, Herb Teas Coffee AZ, and Kitchen Tools AZ. And by clicking, clicking those tags, you can see all the other items that I've reviewed under those tags. That's actually so I can catalog all this at some point. I'll have a you know on, on the TSPAS page, it'll say like Kitchen Tools, Electronics, etc., and it'll use those tags. I just haven't had the time to get that done yet. But that means you can always find more of those items by checking them out. Today's item is the uh, French Press Coffee and Tea Maker uh that i recommend it's actually a complete bundle it's got a little measuring spoon it's got a little kind of s-curve spoon that hooks on the side of your you know your cup and all i don't really care about those spoons other than that little the little s-curve one's kind of cool we keep it on the countertop in like a little shot glass so that every, when you ever want to stir something you can and you set it back on that glass it holds itself upright and it doesn't get the counter all sticky it's kind of cool uh, but it's, it's just the press itself. It's the best deal that i found on a fresh press on, uh, on Amazon. It is a great French press. Uh, it comes with four screens, so it really does a good job of keeping everything screened out. makes great coffee and tea. You can check out my review on it again at teespas.com or just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and look at the, uh, the review will be the, the blog entry directly under today's episode 2106. Anyway, again, always you can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at t And there's a bonus today. I have another new tea blend available in this, uh, this, this the, uh, review for the coffee and uh, uh, tea press. Uh, you'll find it at the bottom in a PS. It's something I made just this morning. Uh, and it's, I like it better than my old morning blend. It's like the new modified morning blend. But if you want to learn how to make it, you'll have to look it up. Again, tSPaz.com. Uh, last today, let's do our song of the day. This is, of course, continuing through the Bad Out of Hell album by Meatloaf. And, uh, of course, Jim Steinman wrote all of these songs. And this is the single. This is the single off of Bad Out of Hell. Um, the way this worked was there was no single on the Bad Out of Hell album. You think, like, most of the songs are, like, nine minutes and, and what have you, and theatrical and all, and they just... Don't work for radio play where you have songs that average two and a half to three and a half, maybe four minutes. And none of them really sounded like singles. So Steinman came up with this. But this song is the song that made Meatloaf famous. Really. They got the radio play. And people love this song. And I think it topped the charts at number 11. That does not convey how big this song was for how long. Yeah, it might have fell off the charts with record sales. Bad of Hell, as an album, did not sell a huge amount of records out of the gate. It didn't really sell a huge amount of records during the record play that it got with this single on it, which is actually the second single released, but it was the single. And this is what convinced the record company to take the risk on it, because they knew that this song could be a hit. And But even with this hit, what I've said before about this album that made it such an amazing thing is it sold 40 million copies, but it probably sold its first 20 million copies over its first 10 years of 40. Like I said, when I was a kid, I'm talking 16, 17 years old, driving around in my old beater car. Every teenager that I knew that had a car had this album and a cassette playing in, you know, some some hacked together stereo system that was probably worth more money than the car they had. It was just phenomenal. But what I wanted to do, I actually found on YouTube an interview with Jim Steinman talking about how he wrote this song, telling you a little bit about what I did, but more, and how it actually started out more of a country song. Yeah. So I figured, instead of me introducing this song, why not let the guy that wrote it introduce it? And with that, I'll sign off and say this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival podcast. You're about to hear from Jim Steinman and on the writing of Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. And I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you enjoy this song. I hope you enjoy this journey through the Meatloaf album. Remember, we've got two more to go. We'll have those Monday and Tuesday, and we'll break off into some other things with Song of the Day. Again, with that, hope you have a great weekend.
6: lyrical idea. It began with uh, a really good friend of mine is now uh, married to my best friend from school, uh, a woman named Mimi Kennedy. Uh, When I was complaining that no one wanted to sign us and no one seemed to like the music, saying, well, it's so complicated. Why don't you write something simple? And the oldie station was on in the other room or something, and they were playing Elvis, I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, which is a very simple song. And she said, Why don't you write something like that? And I said, Well, I'll try. And I went home and the best I could do was, <laughs> I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever gonna love you. Don't be sad. Two out of three ain't bad. And I still had it twisted around a bit. But it was still it was definitely a conscious that was the album was basically finished and they were complaining there were no singles. Um, which there probably wasn't. <laughs> Everything was like seven minutes long and they wanted a pop single and so or ballad, and uh, so I went in to write that with that specific thought in mind. And um that's where it began as a lyric. And then musically I always feel the inspiration of that was kind of country because I loved country music. Um, More old country music like from the 50's that I grew up as a kid hearing Hank Williams and Patsy Cline. Not the kind of stuff today, not like Garth Brooks and that, which is really pop. It was That country music that makes you want to take a shower because the dust is all over you, you know. Um, And and I always love country music lyrics because they had a love of words, and 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 because country music was so damn dark, it was so desolate, and I love dark music, and I always thought they got overlooked how dark. I mean, I don't think you can get through Hank Williams "I'm So Lonesome and I Could Cry" without needing you know Prozac or something. <laughs> it's just, that's just despairing as despairing a song as there is, and it always sounds to me like a, a lonely coyote just howling in you know a dusty moonlit night, and um, and, that, and the melody was country when I was first doing it, it was like um, I don't know how the range will be, but I want you. I need you. But there ain't no way I'm ever gonna love you. Now don't be sad. Cause two out of three ain't bad. Now don't be sad three ain't bad. It was that kind of like giant Cash thing, because it was way low, well, I'm lower now, but it was,
0: I want
6: you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever gonna love you. It was definitely the feel in my head, and then it just turned poppier, we made it pop, more pop than rock and roll, but it, in my head, when writing it, it was, Johnny Cash on a lonely road with (laughs) roadkill surrounding him, singing Back (laughs) Up.